either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Yeah, well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry? You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. Look at this, unexpectedly busy in the screening room this week. I think the first couple of weeks after all these stay-at-home orders kicked in, appropriately, not a lot of movie business going on, so we had to go straight to pretty much the lobby. But now, they're adjusting, and we've got some stuff that's coming out right to home video or Mm -hmm, streaming mm -hmm. or various devices that we can talk about before we get to the lobby. So that is good. Welcome. This is the Screening Room Podcast, and she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf, And we're from MadWolf.com. Let's start with the story of a girl born into a cult who begins to question the cult's teachings and her own reality. It's called The Other Lamb. Let us pray. My wives, you all came to me broken by a cruel world. I took every one of you in. I sacrificed my life for you. I gave you daughters and sisterhood and life. Let us reflect on our blessings. Yes, yes. my shepherd. You think that because you haven't had your time yet, that makes you special. Prepare yourself, child. Our great shepherd won't be so sweet on you then. I'll be seeing you when the blood comes to you. <laughs> this is a new one from IFC Midnight. We've been looking forward to this one, and just right from the trailer, it had me. Mm-hmm. And the star as well. Uh, Raffi Cassidy is the young star of this, and we loved her, uh, like everything else about the movie, The Killing of a Sacred Deer. And right. then what else? Vox Lux. Vox Lux, that's yeah. right. She's very striking looking. She's got she's a, a brunette, real pale, with very, very blue eyes. And it's funny, in a couple of scenes in this, she made me think of uh, Daniel Radcliffe. <laughs> you know what I mean? She's just she's very striking looking. Okay. And, uh, if she's and, listening, she's probably going... Really? What? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Just <laughs> in a good way. Right. Um, <laughs> Love you. And here she plays a girl who is part of this cult that is, aside from the leader, Shepard, uh, it's entirely female cult. Mm-hmm. And she's about to hit puberty. She's right sort of straddling that line. And so the film really kind of explores what that means in this cult, and then kind of symbolically what it means just for women. It's just a beautiful, I mean, it's beautifully shot, very fluid, nightmarish kind of uh, uh, imagery that's used in this movie. Yeah, it really is. And they're out in a very isolated area. So you can expect a lot of earth tones, but... In certain situations, color comes really into play exactly. in this. I love the way the color is used for certain well-intentioned uh, themes. And I also love some of the shots. There's an early shot that really establishes a lot about the movie. There's an early shot of all the women having sitting down to, to a meal. And they're all looking down. They're all looking down as the leader, the shepherd, is talking. But she's not. She's looking up, yeah. and she's looking straight into yep. his face. Yep. I'm like, here we go. And that's, I think, uh, her defiant streak, which she's trying, with his help, to overcome. You know, I think that that is maybe the, the most vital theme of the film, which uh, basically I think the, the film is saying, that is your ally. That's what you have going for you as you are uh, an adolescent stepping into adulthood. That's mm-hmm. that's your strength. Yeah, and we talk a lot about horror movies, especially on our other podcast, Fright Club. Check it out. And we've done a whole podcast on the horror theme of the onset of womanhood, the onset of your period. Mm-hmm. There's a whole, and, and that comes into play here in a, in a big, big way. Yeah. yeah, it absolutely does. And And, you know, not just... Primarily in that idea of the transition to womanhood, but also just the idea of blood and 
what it could signify, power, mm-hmm. death, you know, mortality. And I think that not only is Cassidy's performance really, really strong, yeah. but everybody's is, especially, as I'm not positive how you pronounce his name, Michael Hughesman, who started off in Game of shepherd. Thrones, uh-huh. and he's been in a bunch of He's got a very Christ-like look about him, and I think he plays a shepherd, and he's wonderful. Isn't everybody, if we're not quite sure where we've seen him or where they've been, the Game of Thrones? Especially if they have a beard. <laughs> All bearded men, I assume. How do I know you, Game of Thrones? That's exactly right. This is right. The writer is a C.S. McMullen, and the director, I know I'm going to butcher this, Malgrazata. Smazowska. Uh, so I, I apologize for that. But it, yeah, it looks fantastic. And it's a it's a movie where I kind of got an idea where it was headed. But I think the way they got there and once and once the specifics of how it wrapped up were a little bit of a surprise and very, very effective and very chilling. Yeah. But you said as it wraps up, it's a little bit of a surprise. I think a lot of that is because there it's so dreamy. It you is know, dreamy, there yeah. is such a, a poetry as opposed to a narrative structure to the way this moves. Not in a way that's annoying, because very often you're just like, this doesn't make any sense. I'm completely <laughs> lost. You know, and I don't think that that happens here. I think it really influences the horror, which because it's not an outright horror film by any means. But it's these sort of nightmarish poetic asides that you're not sure. Are they dream sequences? Are they reality? What exactly are they? But they deliver, I think, with some primal horror in a way that feels really in keeping with this change of life sort of situation. I just thought it was beautiful, a beautiful movie. Yes, yeah, so that is The Other Lamb. It's streaming this week, and we would recommend it. Got another big winner next, the story of a pair of teenage girls in rural Pennsylvania traveling to New York City to seek out medical help after an unintended pregnancy. It's called Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. This is the most magical sound you will ever hear. I'm just not ready to be a mom. Where else could you go? Nowhere in Pennsylvania. I think you should try another place. But you're just 17. So much like me. Don't you ever just wish you were a dude? All the time. 17. You ready? This is the latest from a filmmaker that caught our eye a few years ago with her debut feature, It Felt Like Love. Her name is Eliza Hitman, writer-director. Then she followed that, up, followed that up with Beach Rats a couple of years ago. Oh, it's great. Yeah, so great. Exactly. And now she, she's back in, in the best one yet, I think. This is really the culmination of all the promise that those two movies signify. Right. This is a, a, a great movie, a great statement. And uh, by another, you know, I'm thinking back to It Felt Like Love, and she found... An almost a brand newcomer to mm-hmm. take the lead in that movie, and who was very good. And here she takes a, a musician uh, who had never done a movie or really done any acting. Uh, her name is Sydney Flanagan, and she plays Autumn, who's a 17-year-old who uh, is becomes becomes pregnant, and uh, she doesn't have a great home life, especially with her dad. And so the only one that she confides in as she's trying to deal with this is her cousin Skyler played by Talia Ryder, who's also very good. And as she's looking for options and going to her home clinic and then finding out about the certain restrictions in her home state of Pennsylvania that she has to go to New York to get around the parental consent. So they scrape, the two girls scrape together the money that they can and hop a bus to New York City. And so it's, it's so brutally honest and direct. One of the things, even though I liked, it felt like love, 
uh, very much. One of the things I thought brought it down a little bit was it really over had an overemphasis on metaphor and an easy metaphor. Boy, this one does not. This is as <laughs> blunt as a punch in the face in a good way because she is demanding that you come to terms with these yeah, look these directly issues. At it. Look, look directly right at, at it. it. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. And she gets these one stupendous performance and really good performances all around. Uh, and the trademarks of her as a filmmaker, just three films in now in now are there. She is a, a filmmaker of few words, mm-hmm. small details, and a really specific insight. Just a, a searing insight here that, as you say, forces you to confront this head-on. Very little music and long takes, and there's that one just, just brutal take. Uh, where the title comes from. Where the title comes in, yeah. Autumn is at the, the clinic in New York. And that's another that's another good distinction that she makes here between the two clinics about how women are sub- subjected to so many agendas. And maybe a clinic, a different clinic, has an agenda of their own that is not out for the patient's best interest, especially right. a young girl. And then... Really, aside from the whole pregnancy aspect, just the fact that the constant waves of marginalization these women have to go through just in their daily lives, whether they're at work, whether they're just on a bus, that constant, constant, that is just part of their existence. And then you have to deal with uh, the things they have to deal with in this in these medical situations. But, yeah, her interview uh, by an off-camera social worker at this New York clinic, and the social worker asks her a series of questions and wants her to respond in one of four ways, never, rarely, sometimes, always. It's an extended take. It's a hold tight on Flanagan's face. And, boy, as a newcomer, I was just amazed. She didn't shrink from it in the slightest, and it'll just tear your heart out. It's the soul of the movie, and you probably have figured out it's not a feel-good movie by any means. But here's the great thing about it. PG-13. It is PG-13. As well it should be. Yeah, I was floored by that, though. I was in a good way. In a good way. Because it's such... Um, it's not that there's a bunch of sex in it. That's the other nice thing. You don't see, quote-unquote, how she became pregnant. Right. Because it's not needed. No. That's not the point. Exactly right. And so I, I tip, tip my hat to the MPAA here. Or I think they're just called mm-hmm. the MPA now. Oh. Anyway. Because it's that's going to expand, hopefully, expand its audience. Right. And it, these sorts of issues for people of the age that legally are not allowed to see R-rated movies, this is perfect. Yeah. Because more of them will see it and more of them will maybe have conversations that need to be had. So I thought it was great. She, Eliza Hitman, if, if you're not uh, hip to her, go back and look up Beach Rats. Mm-hmm. Look up uh, It Felt Like Love and definitely see this one streaming now. Never, rarely, sometimes, always. Both gave it a big recommendation. Well, let's lighten the mood next with the story of two longtime friends battling midlife crises by opening a bowling alley slash pizzeria in their small hometown, Phoenix, Oregon. Imagine being an owner, drawing your comics whenever you want. Oh, man. Serious? That's what I'm talking about. My partner, Carlos, makes this delicious dough with his hands. Yes. I got 300 scores before, but nobody ever put my pictures in the papers. You should enter our grand opening tournament. You haven't even seen me roll, huh, You haven't seen the action on my ball. These two geniuses are opening up a pizza parlor slash bowling alley. Classy. You know, in the trailer like that, somebody talking about rolling. This is how I roll. Well, <laughs> you think of the Big Lebowski, any bowling movie, I suppose, that or Kingpin. But it's been a few years, so here's another bowling movie, That's... an offbeat, wacky bowling movie. 
Yeah, it's not nearly as offbeat or wacky as either Kingpin <laughs> or The Big Lebowski. Um, the title immediately made me think of Paris, Texas, which might be weird, but it's a very similar structure, no, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. You don't expect Phoenix to be in Oregon, but it is. But what's funny about that is that James LaGrosse is also in this film. <laughs> he um, In this one, he stars really quite well in a very understated performance as this sort of disaffected 50-something Still in his hometown. He'd gone to art school. Uh, he still doodles. He kind of puts together this uh, these panels now and then of a, of a graphic novel. But mainly he's a bartender <laughs> in what passes for fine dining in yeah. this small Oregon <laughs> town. So he hates where he works. And his best friend also works there. And they're sort of being squeezed financially by the owner, uh, played by Diedrich Bader in a, in a, great, <laughs> yeah. a great smarmy turn. Oh, yeah. And uh, and so his best friend talks him into opening this joint venture. The chef wants to make it a pizza parlor, pizzeria, very upscale. Only four different pies to choose from, $18 a piece. Whew. I know. And once the bartender, because uh, when he was in high school, he was a great bowler, bowled a 300 one time. And so they figure they're going to open up this bowling alley where they spent their, their childhood. And that the bartender is going to run this great bar where you can't get a PBR, but you can get an organic Pilsner. And the, the chef is going to be... We're not going. I know. That's the thing. It's a very, very understated film. But where I think it works best is where it, first of all, just skewers what it really is like to be like in your in the middle of your life still living in your hometown, you know, because I think that it's got that nailed. And then the other thing that I think it has going is when you see yourself as sort of the underdog in the situation, right? You're a bartender in a, in a fine dining restaurant. We have to deal with his manager slash owner who's a tool. When you transition into being the guy in charge and now the guy who's repairing your lanes and the person who doesn't want to work the bar and the person who just wants a large pep and a Budweiser and all of a sudden you're the tool and I thought that that was funny and not overdone and I thought that LaGrosse's performance was very good the movie the the problem with the movie is simply that it is so profoundly understated Mm -hmm. it just doesn't go anywhere it's contented to just not go anywhere Kind of like Bobby, still it, in his hometown in his 50s. It's writer-director Gary Lundgren, and it also fe- features a great character actor. You know his face, Kevin Corrigan. Oh, he's so good. He's pops, so good. Yeah, he pops up in a lot of stuff. And I think the one question that it doesn't answer for me is, can I get a large cheese and pineapple? No, there's no chance, Come George. On. No, there's no chance. Why, um, why the hate? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, if you like something a little wacky like that, Bowling and Pizzeria, that one is out on um, streaming this week as well, called Phoenix, Oregon. Got a foreign film next. It's a passionate coming-of-age tale set amidst the conservative confines of the country of Georgia. The film follows a competitive dancer who's thrown off balance by the arrival of a fellow male dancer with a rebellious streak. It's called And Then We Danced. This is from writer-director Levin Aiken, and it's a story, yes, basically it's set in the world of dance, but here, dance is really a metaphor for what else is going mm-hmm. on here, because if you're expecting to see a lot of beautiful dancing and performances, you're not really going to. You're going to see some auditions, some uh, rehearsals, but that's about it. It's not really about dance, but it is about dancers, and ultimately about finding your own voice and, and the freedom that dance gives this one character to express his, his, his own self, his individuality. 
and get a feel of some liberation because obviously it's a gay romance and they're in Georgia and that is uh, no a no-no. Right. In fact, the, the arrival of this other male dancer only is um, made possible because one male dancer was kicked out among amongst scandalous rumors and whispers of him being gay. So uh, there can be some consequences, even more dangerous consequences than that. So once these two start following their attraction to each other, these two dancers. Of course, they have to be quiet about it. Uh, and it's very well done. It's going to remind you in many ways of Call Me By Your Name. Sure. That's not as well done as that, but it is. It's very competent in all areas, especially the, the lead performance by uh, the one dancer also named Levin. He's named, named Levin Galbachiani. Probably messed that up, too. He's very good, and you just, as it goes along, again, it's perfectly fine, a good drama, but you're just wondering... What else is there? Is it going to find its own voice? What else about this makes it its own? And you finally get it at the end. Of course, I'm not going to spoil it, but when they do deliver the finale, like, okay, there. Now I feel like I'm getting this this main dancer, his name is Mirab. His soul, what is driving him, his sense of liberation, his little bit of sense of freedom uh, is wrapped up in the finale. And I think that really pushed it over the edge for me and made it worthwhile. And uh, it's another film that is streaming this week called And Then We Danced. And finally, we've got a new documentary about gerrymandering becoming the hot-button political topic and symbol for everything broken about the American electoral process. But there are those on the front lines fighting to change the system. It's all addressed in Slay the Dragon. We're working with the anti-gerrymandering drive. They're absolutely worried about us. They know that once this gets on the ballot, it almost always passes. This is going to be the battlefield moving forward. If they lose, it's no holds barred. There will be a vicious fight by the people who are in power. We are seeing efforts to undermine the very core values of American democracy. This may be the last time we have an opportunity to do something about partisan gerrymandering. The people of our country are sick of this, and if we don't come and say that enough is enough, then nothing's going to change. Here's a movie where you might want to make sure that you are uh, appropriately socially distanced from Grandma's China because you will want to break some stuff. Boy, isn't that the truth? I mean, this can just make you so angry at just the sheer... Just the audacity. It'll just kill you. And the funny thing is, well, it's not funny, the movie is very direct, very clear-eyed about it. It gives you a good history of the, the whole... Process down to where the weird name comes of from gerrymandering. Yeah, and it's been it's gone. It's been happening for hundreds of years. Yeah, gerrymandering came from the name of an old Massachusetts governor, and the fact that one of the early early weird districts that he drew, somebody commented it looked like a salamander, <laughs> so it became known as gerrymandering. But as the movie points out, it really really got ramped up. I mean, to the extent that it is today, because let's be real, both parties have used it mm-hmm. for hundreds of years. But as the movie points out, it really, what they say, what they term as, really moved into the major leagues in 2010, which oh, just coincidentally is two years after the first black man was elected president. What? <laughs> but the big, big money came in and the increased access to data, data everywhere. You know, so much intimate data about people. They could just pinpoint where they were spending this money. And it's it's evil genius when you hear how this Republican strategist went about turning enough of these districts over in an election year that was a census year. Right. And if you didn't know, every 10 years, 
there's a census, which means every 10 years, that is when the the um, maps are redrawn right. for the congressional districts. And so an election in a year with a zero, like now, right. is extremely important. And 2010 is when it really got ramped up. So, yeah, it'll make you so mad what they're doing. You know, the, the blatant cash grabs, the corporate greed, the, su- the Supreme Court setbacks, the clear systemic oppression by a, a, a process called bleaching. One, uh, ge- one guess as to what that's about. Right. And, and, but the directors here, the, the documentarians, Chris Durrance and Barack Goodman, there's a name, huh? Barack <laughs> Goodman. <laughs> um, they know that they've got to leave you with some hope. Right. And they do that in the form of this group, and I, I'll admit I've never heard of them before, called Voters Not Politicians, led by a woman named Katie Fahey. And she started this entire group from, what else? A Facebook post. Right. And it was, and talk about grassroots, and it grew and grew and grew. And the, the um, documentary really addresses their growth and their fight to put a ballot in Michigan to end gerrymandering after the Supreme Court wouldn't really address it, threw it back, said, you know, the last Supreme Court, once Kavanaugh got on there, they finally just made the decision, this is not something for the courts. This is something for the, the legislature and for something that's, uh, that has worked out through the political process. So that gives you some hope that there are states just like Michigan, that are working against this, and that is how you defeat it. So, yes, it'll make you mad, but it's it's very informative. It's a little long-winded at times, but it is uh, ultimately hopeful, and especially in a year like, again, this year, 2020, mm-hmm. zero, election year, census year. It's definitely a very necessary film, so really uh, recommend that. And it is streaming right now. In fact, it's streaming. You can easily access that through the website of one of our great local theaters here in town. In fact, we, we really highly recommend and, and actually just request outright that if you're going to watch most of the films that we talked about today, try to access them either from, in this case, the Wexner Center for the Arts, their, their website, mm-hmm. uh, and then in the case of several of the other films, And Then We Danced, uh, Phoenix, Oregon, Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, you can get those at the Gateway, at gatewayfilmcenter.org. Mm-hmm. So the what happens is that you don't pay any more to stream the film than you would normally. And in some cases, you're going to be able to get to the film a couple of weeks earlier than traditional streaming services. But the the film centers themselves get a part of the profits. And so it's a, it's a small way for us to help cinemas try to stay afloat during this time where otherwise they're not bringing in any cash. Exactly right. And Wexner Center for the Arts, which you've probably heard of, it's a, a major arts center in Columbus, Ohio. That is wexarts.org. It's a great opportunity there to stream some great films. And with that, let's go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Leading the pack this week, you might have heard of it, Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. And if you remember when we talked about it originally here on the screening room, we both liked it. We don't understand the hate. We thought it was a fine send-out, a fine finale to this entire saga. As I recall, we both really liked The Last Jedi, too, we though. So we are just out of step with everybody. We did. Because it's like everybody hates one or the other of those films. I know. We, we like them both. I gotta say, I, I, I give the nod to Jedi, Last Jedi. I thought it was I a better too. film. But I liked um, the fact that we got so much Kylo Ren mm-hmm. in this one. I really, he's my favorite character of the, of the new saga. And I thought it looked great. I thought that we got a little bit more of a lot of the different characters. I mean, although we got a little bit less of a lot of the characters, too, that really definitely deserve to be 
on the screen. So, I mean, uh, on the one hand, I agree that there were some major flaws. I just don't think that they derailed the entire series and that anybody's house should be burned down over them. But then again, again, I said the same thing last time. (laughs) And sometimes it just seems it's so much overkill. It's like you're just it's like the Beatles getting back together. Nothing is going to satisfy people that feel that this is ruining their childhood in some in some way. And as I've said a million times, I'm one of the original Star Wars nerds and I'm with you. I like that The Last Jedi was trying to do their own thing. But then I like this, that that I don't and I don't view this as a course correction. I really don't. All the things that I've seen brought up about things that betray the spirit of this or that. No, you can go back in some of those first three movies and and look at themes that were done just the exact same way. And dare I say, not as well. Because there's some real revisionist history in looking at those first three movies and how good of movies they were. Well, here's the problem I have. Lately, people look at the middle three movies and find good things. Oh, let's not even. <laughs> let's not even go there. But yeah, for, for these these last three, I'm with you. I think The, the Last Jedi, uh, the one in the middle there, was the best. But yeah. I think all three of them are totally fine and, and totally satisfying as a Star Wars fan. And this one wraps it up with a lot of action. You're right. You're, as you said, a lot of it looks good. And let's and let's face it, the main part of this this entire final trilogy, it's the Ray and Ren show. Mm-hmm. And they're both great, especially Adam Driver, as we've said before. We oh, love Adam Driver. Yeah, oh my God. He's, he's so, so good. good in everything. You know, and that final big twist at the end. You know, I've heard the belly aching about it. I don't I see a problem. I think we're on different we're on different uh, positions there. I felt like it wasn't necessary to give her a backstory that they did, and you felt like it was in keeping, which clearly that was the point. It was in keeping with the entire saga all the way across all of the movies, and I like the idea of making a break, and you like the idea of being faithful to the themes that were built in throughout the end. And and I think that that's the the core sort of knuckle blowing in both of these movies is mm-hmm. is you know you've got these camps who really wanted it one way and then camps who really liked the other way and then for some reason I don't understand why in a I mean let's be honest they're they're very good movies some of them yeah but they're not they're not great movies they're not they're culturally significant movies but even the you know Star Wars. The acting is poor. Some of the, the dialogue, dialogue yeah, is super cringe-worthy. weak. I mean, the the character names are glorious. Oh my god! Darth yes. Vader is uh, one of the the three most compelling and scary and brilliant um, villains of all time. There's a lot of great, right? But uh, there's also a lot of mediocre and a lot of weak in every single one of these installments. And that's the thing. People forget, or a lot of people forget, those first three movies, they weren't about Luke Skywalker. They were about Darth Vader. And it just brings back in the fact that bloodlines have been a huge part of this entire thing. And that's why I didn't have a problem right. making it about bloodlines at the end. Although I did like, I liked... I liked when it wasn't, but it's okay. I like, Yeah, I liked Ryan Johnson's approach with The Last Jedi, who said, look... It's, Let's it's, burn it to the ground and start it's over. It's time to to let go. Mm-hmm. You we're going to be letting mm-hmm. go. I, I like that. Fine. And if he would have come back and done something We'd have been for cool the third with that one, too. I'd have been cool with that. Probably. You know. Yeah. We'll see. But. Uh, well, Ryan Johnson hasn't made a movie I haven't loved yet. So, but having J.J. Abrams come back and feed some fan service, I don't see that as a problem either. I really don't. So, uh, we both liked the Rise of Skywalker. Um, Sonic the Hedgehog is out on home video this week of its regularly scheduled release. And of the let's let's put it this way, of the dung heap that is adaptations of video games, <laughs> this sits near the top. <laughs> And that's about the best praise we can get because it is a dung heap. There have been horrible, horrible video game adaptations 
But this one, you know, for the family, for the kids, especially if you like the game, you know what? You can do worse. Jim Carrey is mugging to beat the band because that's what, what? he does. I know. <laughs> when he does it, you're like, who's that guy? But all the writing and all the caricatures are really, really overdone to the to the simplest themes possible. And if you're going to have it for the kids, okay, fine. So, yeah. you know, enjoy it. And they set it up well at the end. There's a nice little stinger in the credits. So, especially when we're spending so much time at home with the kids, you know, Sonic the Hedgehog, you can do worse. Uh, and you could do worse with The Current War, because that is out this week as well. And uh, this was actually reviewed by one of our writers, Matt Wiener, at MadWolf.com. And let's just say he didn't like it. No, and I think that it, there was just so much opportunity here in terms of the story in terms of what they could have dug into but also this cast shot up oh i know it's it's the story of the fight between thomas edison and george westinghouse to be the the father of electricity and you're talking about benedict cumberbatch and michael shannon and katherine watterson and just right there at the top that's great stuff and nicholas holt and tom holland i mean yeah. the, the cast is just spectacular yeah. and again the stories that they could have told there it's such uh, ripe ground, such fertile ground, and they just don't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's that's one to pass. Looking ahead to next week, we've got a couple brand new ones. We Summon the Darkness and Sorry We Missed You. And then some you might have heard of, like Cats. <laughs> Is it going to be the butthole cut? <laughs> Hashtag release the butthole cut. Uh, Do Little and Little Women comes out on DVD. So one of those was one of the best movies of last year. That's right. And the other two were definitely not. <laughs> so we'll talk about those next week. In the meantime, let us know. What are you watching? I know Tiger King. Besides <laughs> Tiger King, what are you watching? And uh, let us know what you thought about any of these. And if you want to get in on the Star Wars debate, we'll love to have that, too. You can find us easy, easily enough on Twitter. We're at Mad Wolf, M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F. Also chime in about pineapple pizza because I love it. I love it. Hope hates it. And uh, we have problems there. (laughs) We have problems. It gets its pineapple taint on everything it touches. (laughs) Hashtag pineapple taint. Uh, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram. It's Mad Wolf Columbus and the main website where you can find our other podcast that we talked about. We mentioned our horror movie podcast, Fright Club, and then all of our written reviews. That's all happening over at madwolf.com. So in the meantime, stay healthy, stay safe, stay at home. And uh, until next week, (laughs) she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye.